invite you to take your Bibles with me this morning, open them to the book of Colossians, chapter 1, New Testament book of Colossians, smaller book, chapter 1, back to verse 3 and 4 and 5 that we did not finish up last week. While you're turning there, I want to tell you of the in introduction to a second chapter in a book that I enjoy reading. It's called The Compelling Community, What Makes God's Power Attractive. Uh, and it's all about the church's transformation uh, by the gospel. It's written by Mark Dever and Jamie Dunlap. And in that second chapter introduction, they tell of a story from Ezekiel chapter 10. In Ezekiel chapter 10, uh, Ezekiel is an exile in Babylon and he has this vision, a vision of the temple back in Jerusalem. And the vision contains this throne of God and the glory of God. And all of a sudden, this horrific, shocking event takes place in Ezekiel's vision where the glory of God leaves the temple in Jerusalem. And God's presence is there no more. Now, if you know anything about the temple or Jewish life or, or what the temple represents, you know that's a horrendous image for Ezekiel to behold, especially as an exile. The presence of God is no longer with his people. Well, Jamie Dunlap and Mark Dever tell that story in their um, very artistic way, and then they ask this very piercing question that would be good for us to consider this morning. They say, what if that were to happen to your church? What's striking about the example in Ezekiel chapter 10 is that although the glory of the Lord and the presence of the Lord leaves the temple, nothing changes. Business carries on as usual. The temple still appears to be the same old temple, the same old routine, the same old worship, the same rituals. All of that is being done. Nothing changes. And Dever and Dunlap ask us if God's presence left your church, would things continue as normal? Or would there be an obvious descent into chaos? I rather hope there would be an obvious descent into chaos if God were to remove His presence from us. For if God removes His presence for us and we continue on as normal, that means we are living without dependence whatsoever upon God. And that is not how the church is to exist. We're dependent upon our God. And we are doing things constantly that require His supernatural intervention. The two gentlemen, Dever and Dunlap, go on in that chapter to ask, if God's presence were removed from your church, would your worship services change at all? Would your programs change? Then they get a little bit more individual and they say, would your conversations with one another change? You think about the conversations you have with one another here before service and, and after service. If God did not exist or God removed his presence, would that change the way you converse with other Christians whatsoever? Would it change the way you worship and sing praises? It's a frightful thought to think that we might even be continuing on without the presence of God already. For what is notably supernatural among us? 
What is there that you and I, as believers here at Trinity Baptist Church in Weatherford, Oklahoma, what is there that you and I can point to and say, that is absolutely, without question, divine work of God? Is it our worship? Is it our spiritual growth? Is it our rate of conversions and baptisms? Where do we see God's divine hand at play in ways that only He can get credit for? Or if He were to leave, God forbid, would things carry on as normal? That's a sobering question to ask. And it's a question that must be asked on an individual level as well as a corporate level. What in your own life is proof of God's divine, supernatural, intervening work? Or if God were to take His Spirit from you, would there be no change whatsoever? Is there any inkling of joy, supernatural, divine joy in your heart that can only come from God? Is there any kind of evidence of victory over sin that can only be credited to God? Is there any kind of relationship you have with another believer that can only be because of God's supernatural work in your life? Or are we independent individuals? Well, that's what we came to consider Last week, what are those evidences of God in the church's life? Particularly today, specifically today, as we get into verse 4, we'll talk about the subject of love. Is the way that you and I love one another as Christians and the way we interact together as Christians distinctly divine, distinctly from God, or if God's presence were removed, would we still carry on our relationships with one another as always? The truth of the gospel is that our relationships as Christians towards one another should be incredibly distinct from any other form of relationship you might find in the world. For we have relationships that are not derivative of common ground. They're derivative of our relationship with God. You and I have love for one another purely because God loves each one of us. And that forms our relationship And that dictates how we interact. That's what we come to consider today in Colossians chapter 1, verse 3, 4, and 5. Quick recap, look with me in verse 3. You'll remember last week, we we highlighted Paul praying, and he's praying regularly for a group of people he's never met. Chapter 2 of Colossians, verse 1, he highlights that. Though you've never seen me face to face, nor I have seen you face to face. If he had any interaction with Colossian believers, it was very, very minimal before this point. We only really know of two that he had face to face interaction with, and that's Epaphras and Philemon. The rest are unseen, unknown. I have no uh, way to take credit for your spiritual development relationships. I'm Writing to you, I'm connected to you through somebody else. And yet, I pray for you. And I thank God for you. And I praise God for you. He cares for these believers, though he doesn't know them. But more importantly, we highlighted from verse 3 last week, that Paul gives all the credit for the good things in their lives to God. Verse 3 is not a verse where he congratulates them on their achievements or their success or their spiritual development and growth. Verse 3 
is strictly a verse where he gives the praise and glory and credit to God alone. I thank God for what I see in you, not you. There are things that should exist in the Christian life and in the life of a local body of believers that only God can have credit for. Supernatural works that exist only because God exists and only because God in His grace has gifted them to a group of people. And that's what Paul's saying. I see these from a distance. I hear of these things. I see them in your lives. People like Epaphras in verse 7, they're telling me about these things and the only response I can offer is thanksgiving and praise to God. Because they're unnatural for humans. They're, they're divine. They're, they're works of the Holy Spirit. The first one he mentions in verse 4, he says, we pray for you, we thank God every time we regularly pray for you, since we heard, number one, of your faith in Christ Jesus. That's what we looked at last week, your faith in Christ Jesus. We talked about the ownership of faith, the object of faith, the operation of saving Christian faith. First, the ownership of Christian faith is your Faith. It's you. You must be the owner of your faith. There's this unique mingling in verses 3 and 4 where God gets the credit in verse 3, but man gets the responsibility in verse 4. We praise God that He's given you faith, but make no mistake, it's your faith. You're not absent of responsibility here. You must exercise Christian faith. We highlighted last week, and it's worth noting again, it cannot be the faith of somebody else that you have your assurance based on. Hear me clearly. It's not the faith of your parents or your grandparents or your friends or the Christian organization that you belong to or whatever else. It's, it's not somebody else's faith that will save you. It's not that you were raised in a Christian home or, or taken to church by your parents or even come to church now. It must be your faith. The deep, sincere, and real conviction of your own heart otherwise you're playing a dangerous game and you will be sorely mistaken in the end the object of our faith as we talked about last week and as he highlights in verse 4 is Christ Jesus himself I thank God because of and for your faith in Jesus notice it's not your faith in your ability it's not your faith in the law it's not your faith in your moral reform. It's your faith in Christ. For Christ alone is our means of salvation. We have no other answer. There is no other solution to man's greatest need but Jesus. And so any faith that we might possess and that we need to possess that might make us right before God is only faith that can be placed in the work of Christ alone. The perfect life, substitutionary atonement, and literal resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we talked about the operation of our faith and we went to Romans chapter 4 where Paul talks about Abraham and Abraham's faith there. Specifically, Romans chapter 4 verse 21 where he talks about Abraham and he says he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is the faith that God counted to him as righteousness. The operation of our faith. Our faith operates totally on the promises of God. And we look at the promises of God just as Abraham did and we say we are fully convinced that God is not only able but will keep His promise. And what is the promise of God? 
the very object of our faith. Christ Himself. Acts 2.21 Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What a wonderful promise. And saving faith says, I am fully convinced of that promise. That God will honor the one who sincerely and repentantly calls upon the name of Christ for salvation. I have faith. I'm fully convinced, fully convicted that God will honor that plea and save. And that's my conviction. It's important to reestablish that understanding of faith because that's what leads in and in what the next point builds off of. Verse 4. But praise God, since we heard number one of your faith in Christ Jesus, and number two, of the love that you have for all the saints. You can't have number two without the kind of faith we describe first. You can't have love for all the saints without a real faith in Jesus Christ. And if you have a real faith in Jesus Christ, it is the kind of faith that brings about change. And the first immediate kind of change is the way you interact with the other brothers and sisters in the family. Primarily under love. Now, anytime we talk about the church, we might not highlight it, but it can be helpful sometimes to make the distinction and at least possess the framework within our minds to understand that when we talk about the church, we're talking about both individuals and the corporate life of the church. Because it's the individual life that ultimately will dictate the corporate life of the church. And it's the corporate life of the church that has bearing and weight on the individual life of the church. Or individual in the church. So when we talk here this morning about the love that you have for all the saints, you need to be thinking both about yourself as an individual. Is this true of me? And we need to be thinking about ourselves as a church. Is this true of us? Paul's never met these believers, but what he hears of them stirs his heart to praise God. And what he's praising God for is the love that they exhibit to one another. He says that's divine work. That's God. That's evidence of God's work among you. That's God's grace to you. That's God's gift to you. You love the people of God. Now, the literal language Paul uses in verse 4 to describe that kind of love is a broad kind of love. It's not narrow. It's not even necessarily exclusive. It's a broad, big kind of love that he's talking about. It's also not a feeling that he's referencing. The world typifies love in feeling emotional type terms, even mystic kind of expressions. You hear the phrase, I'm falling in love with such an individual. Which is this weird mystical thing that I don't quite understand. But it communicates mostly an emotion or a feeling. The Bible doesn't refer to love in that sort of fashion. The Bible, simply put, refers to love mostly in terms of commitment. If you look to the most famous passage on love, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you see that. Commitment is the underlying principle of love described by Paul. What's interesting about 1 Corinthians 13 
is not that it's read so often at weddings, but that Paul is directly applying it to the life of the church. 1 Corinthians 13 is, is wedged between, naturally, chapter 12 and chapter 14. Chapter 12, he's talking about spiritual gifts in the church and that the church is defined as a body, built together, united together, uh, functioning together. In chapter 14, he's talking about the life of the church and how it should function, how we should work together, how we should structure worship services and all those sorts of things. And wedged right between them, he says, you need to love one another. So, so get this, uh, this picture in your mind that 1 Corinthians 13 is only for weddings. Get, get that out and apply it directly to the church setting. And this is what he says about the love that you and I are supposed to show one another. That is expected and commanded in the life of the church. Patience. Kindness. Not envy or jealous. Not boastful. Not arrogant. Not rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. That's not love between two individuals. That's love in the church. Do we exemplify a love that is patient and kind with one another? Do we exhibit a love among each other that's not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude? The love that we have for one another, does it insist on its own way? Its own preferences? Is it irritable? Angry? Resentful? Bitter? Do we rejoice at the harm or sin of one another? Or misfortunes of one another? Do we rejoice at the truth of one another? The good things of one another? Do we bear all things together? you look at your brothers and sisters in Christ and extend them grace and mercy constantly bearing with their failings and shortcomings? Do we believe all things together? Do we hope all things together? Do we endure in all things together? That's the kind of love Paul's talking about in Colossians chapter 1. Not this emotional, feely, mystic kind of expression this deep commitment that extends to one another to where we say if at all possible we're in this for life he looks at these Colossian believers he has that love in mind and he says I see that kind of love that you have for all the saints and I praise God for it absolutely so it's this broad, <clears throat> beyond a feeling kind of love. It's not the kind of love that we would show towards unbelievers. And Paul's not calling us to ignore unbelievers. Christ himself says, love your enemies and love those who persecute you. It's, it's specific in its application. It's love straight for Christians. For the brothers and sisters in Christ. He describes them in verse 4 in the same way that he did in verse 2. Saints. Which reminds you, I would remind you, is not those 
who have some higher moral standard or spiritual achievement. It's those who by their relationship to Christ are made holy. All of us. By our relationship to Christ, we're set apart. We're saints. It's a specific kind of Christian love that he's talking about in this verse. And also, take note by virtue of its broad use, he's not simply just talking about those in your own church family. The love that he's talking about extends beyond your own church family. Though it includes those in your church family, though it includes those in the Colossian church, it goes much further than that. It includes other churches. We'll find some sort of a relationship between this church and the church in Laodicea at the end of this letter. Paul says, make sure that you get this letter into the hands of the church at Laodicea, and then you read the the letter that I sent to the church at Laodicea yourself. When Paul writes in verse uh, verse 4 here, he is saying... I praise God for the love that you have for the church at Laodicea and other Christians beyond just your own fold. It can even include Christians you encounter. It's a very intensive kind of love. Any Christian you meet, you automatically have love for. That's a remarkable, remarkable grace of God. Christians you know and Christians you don't know. Christians you've seen and Christians you've never seen. They might be different. They might be from other parts of the world. But when you encounter them, you have a love for all the saints. All the people of God. In a world that so hates Christianity. People who love the church typify the love of Christ. And when Paul hears about the kind of love this church shows, he says, I see God's hand there. We have to ask the question why very quickly. Why is this kind of love praiseworthy? Why is this kind of love only credited to God? Why is it such a big deal? First, you think of passages like John 13, 35, where Jesus says, the world will know that you're my disciples by what? The love that you have for one another. It's such a big deal to God, the way that you and I have a special love for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's such a big deal to God that he says, that is how you're going to be marked out in the world. When everybody else hates the people of God, you love the people of God. When everybody else writes them off as crazy or or, bigoted or narrow-minded or radical or extremist. You love those people. They're your brothers and they're your sisters. They're the people for whom Christ died. So there's a natural command. You're going to be set apart in this world and people will know that you're set apart in this world by the way that you love one another. That's how big of a deal it is to God. But also this kind of love that Paul's talking about that's unique and special to Christian relationships. It's, it's a natural outflowing and outworking of the love Christ has shown us. The same author, the Apostle John, writes in his shorter letter, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, he says this, Beloved church Christians, brothers and sisters, let us love one another. Why? 
Because love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. You know what John does right there? He elevates love far beyond a feeling and far beyond just this thing that we should strive after. He entirely connects it to your salvation. The love that you have for other Christians is unmistakably connected to your salvation. To whether or not you know the love of God. He says it in the negative form in verse 8. Anyone who does not love, meaning the brothers and sisters in Christ, anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Again, same reasoning. Because God is love. We're not talking about something that would just be good to add on to our church. We're not talking about just this addition to our Christian development and our Christian life. We're talking about something that the Bible says is extricably linked to your walk with Christ. John is so clear. He says, if you know God and are loved by God and love God, then the natural expression of that, unmistakable, every time is you'll love one another. And the flip side, if you don't love your brother or sister in Christ, then you really don't know the love of God. He goes on to explain in verse 9 and verse 10 his reasoning for this. He says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And get this, verse 11, Beloved, Christians, brothers and sisters, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. There it is again in more bold terminology. We are to love each other as God has loved us. What a tall order. What a major deal. This is why I'm not convinced that people can profess faith in Christ and never darken the door of a church family. That's why I'm not convinced that people can profess love and and relationship with Christ and never once spend time with the family of God. For the love that we're talking about, that we find in the New Testament, that Paul praises in the Colossian believers, is a kind of love that says you are committed beyond all diversity, beyond all differences. You are linked together in Christ. And it's so important to God, He connects it to your own very salvation. Bear with me, I'm going to pick up the speed. Ephesians chapter 2, we find Paul even fleshing this kind of love out. He, he shows us it's the natural outworking of our relationship with, with Christ. John does. And then in Ephesians 2, Paul fleshes it out. What's it practically look like? 
verse 12 of Ephesians 2, remember that you were at that time, you Ephesian believers, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments and expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And so he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's kind of out of context as I read it to you, but let me, let me give you the context a little bit there. He's talking about the relationship between Jews and Gentiles, both who profess faith in Christ. And imagine that dynamic. Jews and Gentiles are polar opposites of one another. You can't find a group of people uh, more opposed to one another. Unless you're a Democrat or a Republican. That's the type of people he's talking about. And that's the kind of connection he's talking about right there in Ephesians chapter 2. And all of a sudden, the early church finds them both professing faith in Christ. What are we to do with such differences? What are we to do with such hostility? You know what the best answer would have been? Paul doesn't give it. The best answer would have been create two different services and two different churches so each can worship how they want to according to their own preferences. That's not at all the answer. The answer Paul gives is realize what the gospel does to you now. You were Jew and Gentile before. Now you're one in Christ. That's the practical flesh out of gospel love, gospel transformation, gospel community. Our differences melt away. So you take the polar opposites of Jew and Gentile, and Paul says you no longer have any more differences that keep you apart. You're struggling coming together. You're both professing faith. You struggle worshiping together. You struggle being in the same building together. Realize then what the gospel really does for you. It removes all those hindrances. It removes all those obstacles. And it unites you together in such a familial type of relationship that, that the world could never experience it anywhere else. That's the kind of love that is going through our minds in Colossians chapter 1, verse 4. This love that transcends differences. This love that binds together. This love that is supernatural, given from God, divine in its origin. This love that is commitment-oriented and, and makes us stick together beyond all of our disagreements. So it doesn't matter anymore, your political preference and it doesn't matter anymore your race or your gender. And it doesn't matter your socioeconomic status or where you work or what you've done in your past. 
It doesn't matter how you like your coffee any, anymore. It doesn't matter what you spend your time doing every, every other day of the week. If you like to fish or you like to hunt or you like to golf or you like to sit at home and read a book, that doesn't matter. All of our differences melt away. We are now bound in Christ and that binding transcends it all. Why is that important? I would narrow it down, summarize it into this. Because it's that kind of love and that kind of unity and that kind only that truly displays the power of the gospel. What kind of love are these Colossian believers exemplifying that would make Paul say that's of God? What kind of love can you and I exemplify to the world around us that would make them say that is of God? It's the kind of love that displays the full, immense power of the gospel that says we are saved from our differences into Christ and based on that alone, we have a connection that is greater than anything the world will ever know. We have real love for one another. It's not a kind of love that's built on worldly or temporal connections. It's not a kind of love that's built on similarities or common ground. It's a love that goes far deeper than all of those things. We, we do an injustice when we try to manufacture love and unity based on similarities alone. Well, this people, they're in the same life group or same life stage. Let's put them together. These, these people, they like to shoot guns, so let's put them together. These people over here, they like to eat organic food from, from Taiwan. I don't know. So let's put them together. These people are over here. Let's put them together. When we segregate one another based on similarities alone, we do a disservice to displaying the power of the gospel. But when you and I come together, despite our lack of similarities, and we find one another confessing sin together, and bearing burdens together. And rejoicing with each other. Then we display a power that comes only from Christ. And that is attractive. And that is glorious. And that exalts God. And that gives Him all the credit. Let me give just a few more clarifying remarks and then I'm, I'm already out of time. A few things I would like to say. First, this kind of love is not a love that just gets extended to those you like or get along with. Those are the easy examples. If I already like you and get along with you, that's not the kind of love we're talking about. This is not a love that's built just simply and merely upon spending time together. We can get together, we can have our potlucks, we can do our ministry, we can sing our, our praise songs. That's not the kind of love we're talking about. Simply spending time together falls short. We're talking about a love that stretches into our hearts. We're talking about a love and a commitment to one another that goes beyond disagreements. 
How beautiful would it be for two people in the church to disagree with one another and say, yet for the glory of God and the sake of the kingdom, I still love you. This is a love that is built upon the gospel for our edification. Mainly, this is a love that reminds each one of us of who God is. Sometimes you and I, we need a a fleshly picture, a flesh, blood, and bone picture of the love of Christ. Where does that come from? It comes from the church. And this kind of love relationship we have. That's the kind of love we're getting at. A love that would make the Apostle Paul set up in verse 4 and say, Praise God. Praise God. That's not superficial. That's not shallow. That's not built on hobbies and worldly traits. That's not the kind of love that we can find anywhere else in, in the Lycus Valley or in Oklahoma or anywhere else in the world. That's a divine, supernatural love. Let me wrap up by highlighting the end of verse, the beginning of verse 5. Just, just like with faith, there's this mingling. Verse 3, God gets the credit, but verse 4, it's your faith and your love that you're exercising. But by the time we come back to verse 5, God gets the credit again. It's a, an A-B-B-A kind of structure in the text. God, you, you, God kind of structure. God is the origin of the hope that's referenced in verse 5. It's a hope that's laid up for you in heaven, talking about the Christian, which means it's already reserved. That's past tense phrase. If you're born again and, and have saving faith in Christ, then your hope is already laid up in heaven. What is your hope? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3-7. through 7. It's the inheritance of eternal life with Christ that you're going to resurrect in the end because Christ resurrected. He will give you life. That's the hope we're talking about. This hope is laid up for you. It's given to you by God. But it is also the way that your faith and love come about. I praise and I thank God because I've heard of your one faith in Christ Jesus and two, the love you have for all the saints. Circle, underline, highlight that word all because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. You have this faith. You have this hope because, or this love because You're living in light of eternity. Because your heart is set towards heaven. Because God has saved you from from this temporal existence. Because God has promised you a home. Because God is completing redemption in you and bringing you into heaven with Him. Because God has given you a hope. You have faith and you have love. I'm struggling with my faith right now. I'm struggling with my love right now. What do I do? Set your eyes heavenward. Turn your gaze to the glories of Christ. Remember your guarantee there. Don't live according to this trivial, temporal existence of this fallen, broken world. Live in light of eternal life with Jesus. Because that eternal life is not inactive. It produces a a world 
change in us, a perspective change in us, a worldview change within us. How do I endure all these trials? How do I grow in all these things that glorify God? I remember where I'm going. I'm being brought home each and every day. That gives me faith. That puts my differences and disagreements in perspective and helps me to love. These two things, faith and love, they're evidence of God working in a church. They're evidence of God working in an individual believer's life. So Paul says, I praise God for it. The question falls to us now, are these evidences real? Or the kind of existence we have now, could, could it carry on if God's presence left us? Is our love and our faith dependent on God being near and working within us? I hope so. Because that's the kind of faith and love Paul talks about. Or if God were gone, could we continue on? I hope not. If this faith and this love aren't hallmarks of your soul, then as John says in 1 John, you don't know the love of God. But there's good news. You can. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, behold, today is the day of salvation. You can be saved while God is extending His arm of mercy. Believer, Let's take time this morning and pray, asking God, please increase my faith in my divine supernatural love for one another that you may be glorified. Those are worthy things to pursue. Father, we thank you for your word and how it sets and, and charts the course for us. How it tells us of your gracious gifts, gifts like faith and gifts like love. How it reminds us how important those things are. That we need to have them. And that in having them, we glorify you. Our faith tells us and tells those around us that you're trustworthy. You're worth placing our faith in. Our love towards one another tells those around us that you have transformed us and our differences melt away and we, we glory in you together. So give us faith and give us love that you might be praised and exalted and glorified. For the unbeliever this morning, O oh God, stir their hearts to see that these things that are lacking in them can only be brought about through Christ. That they need a Savior and He is it. Let your word have its full effect. In Jesus' name, Amen.